0: Michael Waits Media <laughs> okay we are on hi this is Michael Waits and welcome back to the wolfcast today we are joined by Peter Clark the founder and managing director at insurer Corps. Peter thank you so much for coming on the show today how are you doing
1: Yes, it's been my absolute pleasure. And yes, doing okay. Doing okay. Back in the offices again. So seeing some life back in the city, which is nice.
0: So do you normally go into an office?
1: I I did before lockdown. Obviously, during lockdown, I'd spent uh, obviously the whole time working at home. Uh, Obviously, I live by myself. And so just any excuse to get out of the flat now, I'll take it even if it is to go to work and sit in an empty office. I prefer doing that than, uh, yeah sitting in those same four walls that become a bit more like a prison cell than an actual office.
0: Yeah, fair enough. I I live alone as well. And I know that feeling. Sometimes I do just have to get out and come into my office as well, because otherwise I start to go crazy. I want to talk in a little bit about how well you're dressed because (laughs) I love seeing people in suits and ties. Maybe you can just give our listeners a little bit of your background so we can understand how we got to here.
1: Yeah, of course. So I'm sort of a, a, come from a very traditional insurance family. So my my dad was in insurance. Subsequently, my brother and my cousin have joined the market. So obviously, on the back of that, I I joined the market as well and decided to sort of follow in my father's footsteps. So, you know, from a very young age, you know, insurance has always been part of my life. Uh, from the age of 16, um, every summer holiday, Easter holiday, I was forced to work for my dad's MGA. But I used to call myself Chief Scanning Officer, and uh, <laughs> my first role was to go in take all the faxes that we used to get all the stuff all the policy documents we used to get via mail right scan them in save them and uh Make sure they're accessed digitally so that was sort of my first intro was the market was sort of bridging that gap between that whole paper base that we had and yet the fact that we were needing these um, electronic files filing systems now it was a full-time job for me it's just basically scanning in paper uh, and making sure it was all saved correctly
0: and was that your dad's idea right you said you were working for your dad's mga but like where did the idea come from him because he's got to be my age or older right to say 70, we've got so it a, a little bit well, a little bit we've but where did the idea for him come and just say well, like we have to digitize our stuff because we're still today talking about the digital transformation of the insurance industry what prompted that back then
1: well so this is i mean we, we talk about going digital but this really came out of the back of sort of going paperless now i don't know if you remember sort of um, i do i do paper. Especially in, sort of, especially in London market, really, where it came from was, you know, we had some IRA bombings, which then blew papers all over the streets and everything. And so we started off with a clear desk policy, but then as computers started to become more prevalent, we started to onboard everything into a sort of computer system so we could then get their papers out of the office into secure storage. So really it was a case of, you know, having to manage the broker's expectations and they expected to be able to fax stuff to people. They expected to have to send stuff via mail. While at the same time, the underwriters on, on sort of my dad's company side, where they happen to obviously have instant access to these documents while also not having the paper around them so you know it was that sort of first step
0: can you just go through a little bit about the difference between an mga and what a typical insurance company is like because an mga is like a hybrid a little bit right so talk about that because then i want to talk about this relationship between technology and the brokers and the underwriters if that makes sense
1: Course, yeah. So, just to put it simply, so an MGA is somebody who underwrites business like an insurance, like an insurance company does. However, they do it on what we call delegated authority. So, if an insurance company they have their own product suite, but then a group of specialists come to them and say, "Look, we've got this product that we've created. We've got um, a distribution model. So we've got people who want to buy this product. What we don't have is the, the capacity, i.e., right? the ability to actually the, the the funds to be able to write the insurance itself. The balance
0: sheet, basically.
1: Exactly it. Exactly it. So what the insurance company does is, look, we have got no. We don't have the expertise in that sector. Uh, we don't have the distribution in that sector. So what we'll do is we'll give you the authority to write business on our behalf and distribute on our behalf rather than actually sort of becoming, rather than them acquiring them or bringing them in-house. It's sort of that third party sort of specialists uh, that tend to get the, the additional capacity so they can write on behalf of the insurer.
0: And was there a sense back then, I want to get back to this idea of going paperless, right? Was there a sense back then that if you had digital access, even on a simplistic basis, to some of these documents, whether it's policy documents, client documents, that this would in some way make the brokers themselves more efficient? In other words, it would superpower them in a way that if they had to kind of go through the file cabinet and look for stuff, that they could be better better at sales, just better at maybe even disseminating product information?
1: I mean, absolutely. I mean, if you can imagine what it's like, so a broker gives you a call and says, hi, I'm here to talk to you about this um, policy we have with you. And you go, brilliant. Okay, let me just go to the back open up storage, go go through the boxes of files we have, dig out your file, bring it out, find the correct document for it. Or what you can do nowadays, open up your Microsoft filing system, search the client's name, bring up their policy documents. Now it's a very simple, move but the efficiency gains on that across the board were just incredible you know not to mention obviously the the, um, the storage space in the office and how you can get another two desks in <laughs> as opposed to having a massive filing cabinet fair enough so that was sort of the, the first baby steps i think that the market took towards trying to move away from relying heavily on paper yeah. to using a bit more digital
0: i just don't think it changes over time so there's this big worry not just in the insurance market but globally about how technology and kind of robotics And RPA is just going to replace humans. And when I look back at my experience of working in the financial services industry myself, we always use technology to superpower the best sales traders, which in this case would be the best brokers. And it just made them so much better, made the clients happier. Do you see the same thing in the insurance industry?
1: Absolutely. You know, I think those who have been more willing to adopt technology have moved a lot quicker and they have been able to win business off other clients. I mean, um, you know, Convex is a great, great example in how they're, uh, they've come into the market with a fully sort of technology first um, type of mentality and um, how quickly they've grown in such a short period of time. For me, though, the, the main thing is actually it's all well and good giving um, your salespeople or your underwriters or your brokers technology. But if they're not willing to use it, you know, you can give a man a, a spade, but if he's not willing to dig and still, still digs with his hands, <laughs> you know, the spade's completely useless, you know. Exactly. And, you know, I think this is a big problem we've had in the insurance market. The technology is out there. But the skill sets and the right mentality to be able to adopt these tools is not there yet. And I think that's what we've seen is inhibiting um, the adoption.
0: When you go back and look at your entry into the insurance market, like over time, at some point, you stopped being like the chief scanning officer for sure. What what other things did you do before you went out and started your own company? Because at some point, I want to get into talking to about who insurer or why you started and stuff like that. But I want to understand the experience you had before that.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, my experience was sort of quite common for the market. So I actually, you know, went through university, um, obviously afterwards and came out and uh, my whole plan was never to work in insurance and wear a suit, didn't want a nine to five day job. You know, I was going to go on a blazing trail and, uh, you know, did my success. And you sort of come out of university and uh, you realise there are bills to pay and you you realise that insurance is actually a pretty good job. And the fact that I already had obviously established connections in it with my brother, my cousin, my dad, it made it easier and sort of a point of Least resistance to get that initial sort of entry level, and right. obviously the fact that I'd had sort of that sort of summer holidays and those holiday uh, experiences. So coming out of um, university, obviously just got given a bit of work experience by a ex-colleague of my of my old man. It went very well. They took me on board. Good stuff. Um, and that was that was for a sort of a small um, personal accident um, underwriting firm in London market. But that got me my foot in the door in the London market. I'm not sure, obviously, whether your listeners sort of know the difference between sort of the UK insurance market and the London market. Go ahead. It, it is a bit different. So the London market is very much your international hub. Uh, Most of the business does end up down here, but you're really looking at sort of your large scale insurances, et cetera. Whereas obviously the UK regional market is generally, you know, looking at your sort of your motors, your property uh, types of business and uh, sort of your your personal lines. So getting into London market is difficult. It's sort of the the, the pinnacle of uh, insurance in the UK but obviously to get in here, generally you need to have three to five years experience working externally before you're allowed in. But I managed to get my foot in the door quite early uh, with this sort of um, assistant underwriter role uh, for this personal accident firm. So that was sort of my first London market job and my first real active job that wasn't necessarily scanning. You know, this is actually me getting involved in the pricing of risks and managing clients and managing brokers, et cetera. From there though, as much as I uh, enjoyed that first job, I didn't want to stay in the personal accident space. It, it wasn't for me, let's put it that way. Um, so I decided to look at what other uh, classes of business, what other lines there were. And uh, I was really interested in the engineering sector and construction, um, just personal interest. So I yep. started doing research into that, applied for a few jobs and managed to land a job as an underwriter for a construction engineering firm called HSB, who were part of Munich Re. Okay. And that's really where I sort of you know, cut my teeth and started to know, learn really about the intricacies of the market, uh, underwriting, placing business and broker relationships, et cetera.
0: At some level, isn't it? Once you get into the London market, you said, like, this is not where some of the smaller trades happen. This is where some of the biggest sort of syndicated underwritings, and I'll call them trades because that's what they look like to me happen. At some level, that must be super exciting, no?
1: It is. I mean, you know, the London market really is an extremely dynamic and fun place to work. You know, and as much as it gets a bad stick for not being modern and innovative in the same way, you know, what you do have is you've got a load of extremely well qualified professionals in a square mile you know you have to understand the, the london market is literally a square mile yeah uh, you know and you've got everybody in there everyone you could possibly need to meet and speak to all in this one space so what you get there is a, is a great obviously the networking the contacts but also sort of the learning you get just from being around people or who've, who've been in the market 30 40 years you know just sitting having a conversation over a beer with them you know you can learn so so much from them so now the, the london market is really quite an exciting place to work and when you add into that sort of the what insurance is, which is not only sort of these large syndicated risks, but it's everything. You know, everything you could possibly think of is insured. You know, from space rockets to you know watches to cars to high net worth people to you know art and so whatever your passion is, whatever you're really interested in, yeah. you can find a niche in the London market. And you know, you just spend your time evaluating the risks associated to the thing you're really interested in. So for me, for example, in engineering, you know, we saw some fantastic projects come across. You know, where um, so I'm the building of sort of the the building that. Re- place the trade world trade centers the freedom tower you know we we saw the plans the documents for that you know then you're looking at sort of what what contractors they're using what materials are being used the um uh, the construction processes they're implementing you know and it's, it's a very, very interesting subject once you get into it. And, you know, like I said, you, you can pick what's interesting to you and to dive as deep into it as you like.
0: Yeah. So one of my previous guests on this show actually said to me when he was getting close to graduating from university, sat down with his dad and had a conversation and he had no connection to the insurance industry yet. And they were trying to figure out, like, what he should do. And they came to this conclusion that the only industry that touched every other industry was insurance. And he was like, yeah. that's what I'm going to do because maybe I'll go there and then figure out the industry that I want to be involved in. And in the end, he ended up saying, I want to be involved in the industry that still touches every industry.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It is, you know, and yeah, it does get you to meet all different types of people from, you know, all different areas of the world. I mean, the London market is a, is a international hub, you know, so, you know, it deals with markets across the globe as well. Um, so it gives you sort of fantastic range of um, introductions networking opportunities and skills as well
0: so what prompted you after doing that to say I'm going to start my own company was being an entrepreneur always a realistic goal you had do you know what I mean
1: well no, it wasn't something I set out to do I mean I had friends who you know from a very young age thought oh, I want to set up the next phase but I want to you know, yeah, become yeah. an entrepreneur but you know I never really had that motivation or that mentality and you know? For me, it was more a case of, you know, when I was sitting in my job, just I noticed some clear inefficiencies in the market that weren't being addressed. You know, this is predominantly around relationships, really, in the market and how, although it's a great market, and obviously I said everyone's within a square mile, it's very much dominated by small groups or cliques of friends and connections. Some might call them sort of old boys groups, Network. if you know what I mean, yep. um, who stick together, scratch each other's backs, look, look after each other. And it can be often quite difficult for people to break into that and know what's going on and stay up to date with things. You know, If you're not in that loop, you're outside of that loop and yeah. obviously life's a little harder for you. And I saw this sort of being quite prevalent throughout the market and business was being lost and wasted because you know, someone might not know of somebody because they weren't part of the group. And yet that could have been a fantastic business opportunity if we brought them in. And so what I decided to do is looking at really, how can we better democratize access to the London market, make it less around um, who you know and how you know them, and more around what they're offering, what their rates are, is it the best opportunity for the client? Well, what we have to remember, so insurance has always been said to be a relationship business. You know, it's especially in the UK, it's intermediated. So you have brokers working with underwriters and they have to form a close collaboration to be able to work together. So those relationships over time have been developed through, you know, generally 35 years of, you know, shoe leather, walking around the market, making the connections, building up a network, trying to understand who who does what, how to speak to them, etc. So when you're new coming into the market and you, you might have a risk, trying to then understand where to go and who to go see generally requires you to start walking around. And it's very difficult unless you've got 35 years experience of knowing where to go. Right. So I just wanted to simply make it easier for us to connect to our brokers, for us to communicate to our brokers, but also for brokers to be able to understand all the opportunities that are there out there, not just what their mates, Dave, Dan, and uh, Don were doing. <laughs> I know those guys. Is, yeah. I mean, Dave, Dan, and well, they're well, well known in the market, yeah. You know, as long as you're part of their clique. So yeah, we really just wanted to bring a little bit of sort of the, the modern networking practices that everybody was using in their day-to-day lives and bring that into what is a heavily relationship-based business. So if you talk to anybody in the insurance market, you know how do you learn to trust someone? They'll say, right, well, you shake their hand, judge their handshake—is it firm? Is it soft? Whatever it is, you look into their eye. Do you see a glint in their eye? And all these types of things—they look yeah. at you straight. You know, are they well dressed? And that's how they build trust. And that's obviously uh, historically how we've 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 generally everywhere. done it. You look at someone everywhere. Exactly it. But then now, if we look at you know, I use the example of uh, my young cousin, who's you know he's been growing up obviously with digital et cetera, and uh, went around to his house. couple of years ago and I asked my auntie where is he and he was she said oh upstairs playing with his friends so I assumed I'd go upstairs walk into his room and there'd be him and five mates sitting around (laughs) having fun but he was sitting by himself but what he was doing was doing um, playing a game called Minecraft I don't know if you've heard of it it's quite popular with the the younger kids and he was doing a collaborative task on this computer game with um, three other guys one from Holland one from Liverpool and one from the US so good they've never met each other they've been working as a team now for two to three years and doing stuff collaboratively online. They're friends, they are able to do collaborative tasks, they trust each other and all that. They've never shaken each other's hand, they've never looked into each other's eyes. And so, you know, it's just about trying to um, educate the the generation in the market that are so used to that, you know, let's meet in a pub, let's shake hands, let's look into each other's eyes and make sure we can trust each other too. That there are tools out there and there are ways of collaborating and building relationships online and digitally without having to have that face-to-face. And it's not to say the face-to-face doesn't add value. It's not to say that it might it, not be needed in certain situations. Right, But a lot of that can be taken online and facilitated. In
0: Sorry, I'm just really curious about this because I've thought a lot about, you know, Facebook as the sort of initial cut. And I know there was MySpace before and all this other crap, yeah, but I'm just talking about like Facebook as this initial cut of a network. I don't want to call it a social network, but it's just a network of people that can Mm -hmm. communicate with each other. But it always seemed to me that there should be individual verticals and niches in these networks that get created for very specific businesses, interests, whatever they are. And I don't wanna say this is the Facebook of that because I think that that's trite, but it sounds like, and I wanna really understand what InsureCore is, is that this is a place where people in the insurance market can meet, create trust, do business, create a profile, and communicate, hopefully effectively and efficiently, and then create connectivity and networking so that other business can get done. Does that make sense?
1: That's exactly it. And I might use that as my elevator pitch going forward.
0: (laughs) That's free, by the way. No, but this is really interesting because at the end, I want to ask you some other questions about this, but how do you get, you know, no one wants to go to a party if nobody else is going, Hmm, right? So how do you get the first group of people to join? Normally that would be the younger cohort, but it's the older cohorts that really have all the influence at the beginning. How do you get everybody in this room, in this virtual room, to then start interacting with each other and say, you know, you had Dan, Dom and Dave or that group you were talking about before, but how do you get them to talk to Bill and Tom and Lisa and Marjorie and stuff like that and then get everybody feeling comfortable? What's that mechanism like you were talking with your cousin and Minecraft to build that trust? Because that's key, right?
1: It is. No, absolutely. You know, you've hit the nail on the head in terms of what was our, so our initial challenge was what I call the chicken and egg scenario. Yeah, always. So we'd be going to brokers and saying, do you want to come on and use our platform to source capacity and better network with underwriters? And they're going, brilliant, yeah, what underwriters have you got? Well, none. but uh, it'll come back when you've got underwriters and you'd go over to the underwriters and you'd have the same conversation. What brokers right. have you got? None. We've got the brokers. So we, we did have a bit of an issue there, just um, you know, trying to build up enough traction from one side or the other, to make it a viable option for the other one to sign up. So we actually did that through partnerships. So within the insurance community, there are a number of associations groups who obviously have come together to try to sort of speak on behalf of maybe all the brokerages or all the managing general agents or,
0: all the underwriters, yeah.
1: The underwriters, etc. So we actually approached Bieber because Bieber were the current, so Bieber is the British Insurers Brokers Association. Yep. Um, it's the largest broker association in Europe. Um, and it really sort of, you know, it lobbies government on behalf of brokers. It's got, you know, 3,000 members, etc. Um, and is pretty much sort of, a, it's, it's a big force in the UK broking market. But at the time when we first founded, they were using um, a, a company called, I think I was like the Insurers Buyer's Guide. So what this was, was it was a book, that was printed off every year and it was a yellow pages and people could flick through, find the capacity they're looking for, find the telephone number, give the guy a call and go on. And this was called the Bible of insurance and it was sent out every year to all of their members. And it was used. I mean, everybody you speak to in the insurance market of a certain age will say, yep, I had one on my desk for about 20 years, sitting there, ready to be used. And obviously what we are is, you know, it's like saying, you know, we, we're what Google did to the yellow pages. We did to, Clueless and sure as bias guide, you know. We put it all online, made it, you know, self-manageable. we collected data on it. We can better match people. We've got so many more features. But really, in essence, what we did was we took what they were already doing in this directory and showed them sort of how it could be done online. So that got the support of Bieber uh, They then, obviously, rather than sending out the book, they then sent out logins to InsurerCore And it. that gave us our initial broker base.
0: That's so interesting. Do you see yourselves... I always try to get these platforms involved in the transaction, right? So if there's this idea that offline people would meet in the hallway, talk about deals, hey, I've got to introduce you to, you know, to Lisa because she's got the big part of this deal. They go to a meeting room, they structure the deal out, they get some lawyer to come in and sign some papers, and then the deal gets done, everybody gets a commission, everybody goes home. Mm-hmm. But there's no way to track that right nah. that deal just happens and it just kind of vaporizes everybody knows it's ha- it's happened but it's not in a format that people can go back to it later and say this is how it happened so you have all these interactions now taking place on insurer i'm presuming where people are meeting in the virtual hallway they're sitting down in the virtual room they're doing these deals do you tr- can you track that as well so that later you can say here's like where these things price do you know what i mean yeah, so here's I a do. guide on how that stuff works kind of thing
1: so at the moment, no. So what we don't do is we, we step away at the point of transaction. So we do the initial introduction so we can track it through to the point of inquiry and take it to the next steps. Once I take it to the next steps, they, everyone's... So the, the mentality we used there around the transaction was at the time, and even to this day, people are chucking a hell of a lot of money, you know, tens, hundreds of millions into quote and bind, placing e-trading platforms. Yep. And they really just deal with the transaction. They are... You've got to... You, you put your info in. Pass it across. You both sign. Transaction goes through, and it takes all the monies and and deals with, it, which is fine. Um, you know, and that was obviously what was being um, sort of pushed as the thing that's going to really modernise the market is getting this e trading going on. But our concept was, you know, if you actually look at the placing process, the vast majority of the placing is actually the relationship building before you submit the risk, and that transaction bit's the final bit. You know, everything's generally agreed by the time you get to that transactional piece. It's everything before where there was nothing that you still have to walk into the building carrying your paper, do all the discussions, build the relationship, then go back to your office and submit electronically. Yeah. And so there's a huge gap there in um in, in efficiency. So our goal was never to sort of build a transactional platform, but with the scope of the number of these placing platforms out there that we saw, we realized there was never going to be sort of one platform to rule them all. Uh, for want of a better term, you know, yeah. no one's always, I mean, there's, there are two sort of big ones in the London market, which is PPL, which is backed by Lloyds, and Whitespace. And the market is pretty much split between them. Then a few have built their own platforms and, you know, all, all of this. So we knew there was never going to be one platform dominating. But what we built is we built it so we have, um, we put it sort of with APIs in mind, so we can plug into these placing platforms. So for me, the transactional platform almost comes to be a, a unique selling point. You know, if you've got a better platform to be able to um, suck in that data from a broker and be able to sort of deal with that transaction, then that broker might be more convinced to go towards you. So what we've done is we've allowed people to plug in their placing platforms into us. So once we pass it on, we can show that we've passed it on to them, but then obviously we can't track the transaction going through. But what we can do is we can sit down with them at the end of the year and go, look, this is what we've produced for you how many of that actually went through right. and got written on the back end as well. So it's a bit of a manual process there, but for us, it stops us from trying to compete with what is already a very competitive market.
0: How long have you been in business with Insuracore? What year did you start it? Um, 2016. So That's almost six years ago, because I'm yep. presuming it wasn't on January 1st. No, it wasn't. No, it was in September. Are you surprised at how complex the systems are that you've built in relation to not just the original idea you had, but just the original implementation that you had.
1: Absolutely, I mean, it's completely changed, you know. My, my, my first attempt really was almost like a, a spreadsheet with a bit of a front end, you know, so I'd get somebody to put some data in on one side, somebody to get some data in the other side, and can I match it? And that was really our, our initial attempt. Right. Obviously through these years of, you know, experimentation, trial and error, you know, we, we've developed a load of sort of nuanced features which really do cater for the complexity of how the insurance market works. You know, so I mean, if we take LinkedIn for example, you know, there's a similar type of model there to what we're trying to do. Ours obviously does go a bit further along the transactional piece, and LinkedIn does, um, but LinkedIn was built for recruiters. It, it's it's designed to help you find a job. It's designed to push your CV out there. You know, so designing something built for the placement of commercial insurance did require a hell of a lot of trial and error iteration and uh, development to make sure it really caters for how this market is structured and also obviously how the data is shared and put across as well.
0: Yes, so you bring up a really good point. LinkedIn to me is like the Facebook of jobs in a way, but it's not so specific. And just like Facebook is noisy, Google is noisy, and we'll talk about search in a bit too because it also interests me. LinkedIn is getting noisier Right, and You're right, because it's built for the recruiters, not for the people that are looking for a job per se. The tools that they build and the algos that they run are different. I'm curious if you see space for, because if once you get everybody in the same, again, virtual space, well, if there's a job opening somewhere, you already know how well somebody does their job or if they're happy in their space or if their managers are you know, a good gal or not. Is there an employment mechanism on the platform as well, or do you not want to do that either?
1: We, we've um, stayed well clear of that for, okay. for, for reasons. We've had lots of recruiters come up and offer us money uh, for our data and what we're doing. And we've, we've reluctantly had to turn them down because we're, we're, we're charging the uh, insurers to list their products, also their people. You know? So the, the the client there Got is it. obviously the MJ insurer. If we're then going, okay, put your people on there, put your products on there. Oh, but we might just pinch him and put him over there. Right. So there's a bit of a reluctance on behalf of the um, sort of MJ's insurers to actually list their people if it's going to be a poaching tool. So we stayed well clear of that and we made sure that everyone coming onto the platform has to be either a broker or an underwriter or can evidence that they are uh, proactively working in the insurance market and bring value to our broker and underwriter users.
0: Right, so this gets back to one of the theories that I love about this building a niche or a sort of vertical specific place to meet like this, is that it can be curated, right? I talk about this a lot, and I had this discussion this morning with somebody else. In the real world, you cannot go up to somebody and shake their hand and say, "My name is Bill." If your name ain't Bill, right? You can't do it. You can't say, "Hi, I'm Peter Clark," and like make a you wear like Peter's clothes. You could do this on Facebook. It's terrible. So if you're building a plan, and I always say that I think that the online world should mirror the offline world with, you know, you have to be able to prove your identity. You can only really have one phone number kind of thing. And you've done that. And that's actually super cool because now this is how you build the trust as well,
1: right? Exactly, Yeah. We vet everyone signing up to the platform. We take, so when a company signs up, we vet their FCA number, we, we, we check them out from the company's house, we make sure they're viable, actually transacting in the insurance market. And once we've done that, we'll, we'll work with the, um, the, the company themselves to onboard their users. So the company actually manages their staff themselves. Now, that's not to say that they can't make up that they're, staff that don't exist. I understand. But we're trusting the companies, obviously to represent their own company in a way that sort of befits them.
0: Yeah, but that's their problem, not your problem. And the likelihood that they'll do that is an edge condition, right? And that's, again, this whole trust thing. Because once, like, I I say this a lot, but it's like once you lie, you're a liar. Yep. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? You can't take it back. so easily. Yeah. Yep. You can't take it back. And it takes like a lifetime to build a reputation and a moment to lose it. So it's not worth messing around just for that.
1: That, that, that's our mentality. I mean, if you look at how, especially in the insurance market, how protective people are over their brands sure, uh, and how they come across, you know, we, we, we are quite confident that people will be using the platform in a way that, you know, is, is true and honest. And we yeah. obviously have that in our yeah. terms of conditions as well.
0: And you, you made this point earlier. The whole community lives in this, like, one square mile. And if you're not inside of it, you may as well be on the other side of the planet, right? Yeah. Because you're out, just, you know, theoretically did covid have any impact on your business building business activity at all uh yes dramatically so so
1: obviously you know, when you had everybody in the offices um, and people were meeting face to face on a regular you know the the need to meet online was not as prevalent you know we were before covid or before lockdown sorry a useful add-on tool that could help you a little bit <laughs> during lockdown obviously this is obviously a first for the industry to lose that sense of community lose that ability to access new people new right. networks on a regular basis so yeah we we grew we, we mapped it out that it would have taken us three years to grow to where we are if we'd been on a on the sort of a trajectory we were on prior to the lockdowns so yeah it, it really did fast forward us and I think you know you can say the same about all technologies you know people who were extremely reluctant to change the way in which they worked were forced to adopt, you know, whether it's even just using teams, you know, there are people in this market that would refuse to do video calls and right. uh, all these other bits and pieces, you know, but when there's no other option, well, one thing that's talked about quite a lot in this market is that insurance you know, hasn't innovated because there's never really been a burning platform for it. You know, it's never had to, it's never been in a crisis mode, you know, not to a massive degree where it goes, we've got to do something now or we're, we're screwed. So it's, it's always just sort of ticked along going, you know, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. So that's why change took so long. But with lockdown, it was the first time the, the market was really forced to change the way in which it worked. You know, there was no other option for it. And that has accelerated the mentality around you know, the adoption of new technologies yeah, massively.
0: Could you feel the difference? Do you know what I mean? Like, let's say, and I'm just making up numbers, right? But I've got a buddy who runs a business, it's growing nicely. He's got 125 new businesses sign up every month. Sometimes it's one thirty. Sometimes it's one. It's good, but he wants to get to like thousands. So if you say like it took it, you would it would have taken you three years to grow in the time that you grew in a year or whatever it was. Could you feel yeah. it? Like were you sitting at home going, "Uh oh," kind of thing? Like this thing's yeah, moving. I mean,
1: we were. I mean, it, it wasn't so much of an "uh oh" moment for us because of the platform. It's it's quite low touch. It's all it's self service on behalf of the insurers to go and update their products. It's like LinkedIn, for example. You know, if LinkedIn got saw a huge spike in people signing up, it doesn't take much for them to, in terms of resource, to actually cater for that. You know, you've got to increase your hosting costs, and that's really about it. So, no, it was lovely to see. You know, it was, you know, we've built the platform. One thing that everyone always says, you know, it's, it's really intuitive. You know, I go in to do demos, and they go, it's not much need. I played around with it, but I can figure it out. Like, okay, <laughs> brilliant. <laughs> so, which is great. Brilliant. That's five minutes. See you later. Thanks for it. So um, yeah, we didn't really see, uh, feel like that. Oh, oh, but we definitely saw a serious spike. We saw. I mean, whereas before everything had come from our outreach, right. so you know we were having to go hi there. We we're in. Would you like to have this conversation? We then got an influx of people going. How do I get on your platform? Uh, definitely <laughs> you know, what do I do? Help. You know, and that that really was a sort of a change. And the conversation since has remained so as well. Even now. I mean, obviously I'm in the city now and it is very quiet. Yeah. Um, I think there is an acknowledgement that we're not going back to that old way of working. No. So it's almost like these new um, methods of, or uh, well, these new tools that we've brought in are sticking, you know, which is lovely to see. It's not like everyone's gone, right, lockdown's over, drop the teams, bin the laptop back to the pub and let's start doing business on fad packets again, you know?
0: Yeah, that's not going to happen. Look, I think there's a lot more to cover, but I want to leave a little bit of this on the table because I'd like to come back to you in, in a bit, maybe in a few months, and maybe just do a follow-up. I really want to thank you for taking the time of doing this. This was fun for me, really interesting as well. And I really want to thank you, Peter Clark, the founder and managing director at InsureCore, for coming on and doing this today. My well,
1: absolute pleasure. Thank you for inviting me.